still understand we're not going to fight reactionary pigs and reactionary state attorneys like this and reactionary state attorneys like Hanrahan with any other reactions on our part. We're going to fight their reactions with all of us people to get together and have an international proletarian revolution. Right on. Right on. Right on. And that's saying all powers to people. Right on. That's saying no matter what color you are, you're just only two classes. And that's saying there's a class over here and there's a class over there. And the reason that this class over here has never did anything to get this class off its back because this is lower, this is upper, this is the oppressed, this is the oppressor, this is the exploited, this is the exploiter. You've been listening to Chairman Fred Hampton of the Black Panther Party. This is the Red Stripe, and my name is Cassandra Devereaux. In 2013, in Fresno, California, police officers raided homes and offices of a pair of businessmen who were suspected of operating an illegal gambling operation. The men were not charged, instead agreeing to forfeit $50,000 that had been held in evidence. However, according to the two businessmen, the cops had actually seized over $151,000 in cash and $125,000 in rare coins, which were never returned. The men brought suit against the police for civil rights violations on Fourth Amendment grounds. The Fourth Amendment is intended to protect the individual against unreasonable search and seizure. The path through the legal system can be long and winding, but the suit met its end before the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. This court was considered one of the most liberal in the United States and had so earned the ire of President Trump that he described it as a complete and total disaster and a big thorn in his side. Regardless of such perceptions, A panel of three judges made a remarkable ruling. The officers could not be sued for their theft due to a doctrine called qualified immunity. The qualified immunity doctrine was invented by the Supreme Court in 1964, but to understand it, one needs to go back to the era of Reconstruction and the Civil Rights Act of 1871, a.k.a., the Ku Klux Klan Act. This act was signed into law by President Grant in an attempt to protect the internal colony that had just been released from the chattel form of slavery. The Klan was created by former Confederate soldiers and was ubiquitous in law enforcement and state militias. Federal troops were tasked with upholding the law in the former Confederate states. It also allowed the Klan to be tried not in state courts, but in federal courts, where juries were predominantly black. This helped the people's struggle break the back of the original iteration of the Klan. Given the common presence of the Klan in the public institutions of the former Confederate states, this law also cemented the right of the individual to sue public officials for violations of their civil rights. It's worth noting that once federal troops were pulled back from the South, the era of Jim Crow would descend upon the former Confederacy and the ability of former slaves to equally access protections via the justice system went away. At the most generous, 
Reconstruction was an attempt to mitigate the worst excesses of white supremacy without the destruction and replacement of the system of white supremacy. One tentacle of a capitalist beast, built on misery and subjugation of black bodies, would never be destroyed by another tentacle of the beast. Rights under bourgeois rule come and go with the whims of whatever faction is in charge at the moment, and the factions all serve the capitalist class. Qualified immunity, created by the Supreme Court of the United States in 1967 for the dubious reason of protecting public officials from so-called frivolous lawsuits, shows just how fragile rights really are under the dictatorship of capital. By the dictatorship of capital, I mean a system ruled by and for the benefit of finance capital. Originally, qualified immunity was extended to public officials who allegedly believed they had acted within the law. This is already a standard of evidence rife for abuse. How might one prove to a jury that is raised from the cradle to trust the police that a cop didn't believe they were acting within the law? But it got worse when a military contractor named A. Ernest Fitzgerald was fired for testifying as a whistleblower against President Nixon. In this suit, the Supreme Court rules that the president had absolute immunity against this lawsuit, putting to the lie the prosaic notion that in bourgeois democracy no one is above the law. But then Fitzgerald sought redress against White House aides with Harlow v. Fitzgerald. Here, the court expanded the scope of the doctrine of qualified immunity to a terrifying degree. The new standard was no longer good faith. It was ruled that the official could violate one's rights completely maliciously, as long as said right had not been clearly established in the law. In describing the development of the state in Origins of the Family, Private Property in the State, Frederick Ingalls wrote, Quote, having public power and the right to levy taxes, the officials now stand as organs of society above society. Special laws are enacted proclaiming the sanctity and immunity of the officials, unquote. The Supreme Court could not have affirmed this truth better if they had set out to do so. But, Engels went on, talking about police versus the head of traditional family structures, quote, the shabbiest police servant has more authority than the representative of the clan, unquote. And just to be clear, since we talked about the clan with a K, he was talking about the clan with a C. Just wanted to clear that up. As we have seen, so loosely has clearly defined rights been interpreted that this doctrine now protects police from lawsuits after they outright steal money. But of course, theft is the least of the crimes police commit. The Black Lives Matter movement has brought to light how commonly and callously police kill, especially black men. They're rarely brought to criminal trial, and it's a rarer instance still in which they're convicted. Often the only measure of recourse for victims is to file a civil suit. At least this is true for those who can afford to do so in a capitalist society where the pursuit of justice is a profit-making venture. Access to justice is a class issue. The U.S. Constitution establishes a defendant's right to legal counsel in criminal cases, 
but there are no such provisions for civil cases. According to journalist Max Stenard of Commonomics USA, quote, The Constitution guarantees you the right to an attorney if you're a defendant in a criminal felony case. But in civil cases, you have no such right. That's alarming because civil cases include domestic violence injunction hearings, where I've seen victims forced to represent themselves against abusers who could afford a lawyer. I've seen judges look those victims straight in the eye and say, you should have had a lawyer with you. Funding for our nation's heroic legal aid programs is never enough. Legal aid attorneys estimate they serve only a tiny percentage of those needing legal help, unquote. Therefore, the bourgeois justice system functions on a multi-tiered model where poor and working class people often cannot afford representation. If they are somehow able to secure such, it's often someone direly overworked. Meanwhile, the rich in their institutions are able to afford the best legal representation possible. Teams of lawyers who are able to devote significant time and resources to their cases. According to the American Psychological Association, black, brown, and others of oppressed nationalities are more likely than whites to experience multidimensional poverty, which encompasses not only financial poverty, but also such factors as health, nutrition, access to clean water, education, and quality jobs. Black unemployment is generally about double that of white unemployment, while Latinx unemployment tends to lie squarely in between. Income also follows this pattern. In a world where black people are routinely victims of police terror, and one where justice is a source of profit, this pattern shows that those who most need representation often don't get it. Meanwhile, police are usually provided representation from departments, municipalities, or professional associations. To put it bluntly, the table is tilted. It gets worse. Officer body cam footage often makes up the majority, if not the totality, of evidence in a case. What gets recorded is determined not only by department guidelines, but by officer compliance with said guidelines. It is generally not released to the public, only seen in court. Because it's usually the department that stores the videos, there's every opportunity for them to lose recordings that aren't in their interest footage that might lead to liability. Further, jurors often carry conscious or unconscious bias in favor of police. The pop cultural landscape pushes pro-cop messages nearly from the cradle, such as Disney's Zootopia, which featured adorable animals as police. Police procedurals from Dragnet to the various iterations of Law & Order, have dominated television nearly from its inception. And in mass media, police aren't expected to be confined by rules. Films like the Dirty Harry and Die Hard series valorize cops who are unbound by any laws, portraying them as heroes who are effective because they break the law and act on no authority but their own. These portrayals influence how jurors see police, 
and help explain why so many choose not to hold officers to meaningful account. This can only be compounded when the ever-pervasive racism of U.S. society comes into play. And it must be noted that a criminal trial or civil case may well see not only one officer take the stand, but multiple others appearing as witnesses, compounding a juror's pro-police bias exponentially. The table tilts further. Given all that, it becomes almost unheard of for a cop to lose a civil case. About 20% of victims of police shootings are people who are unarmed. These victims are disproportionately black or Hispanic. In a society where cops shoot a 12-year-old black boy without saying a word and before their patrol car stops, meaningful accountability is a must. It is also sorely lacking. The reason is that the police don't exist for the benefit of poor, working-class, or oppressed people. It exists as a tool of the bourgeoisie to secure their power and protect their property. In The State and Revolution, Lenin describes the bourgeois state and its police as, quote, a power which rose from society but places itself above it and alienates itself more and more from it. What does this power mainly consist of? It consists of special bodies of armed men having prisons, etc. at their command, unquote. He went on to explain, quote, When asked why it became necessary to have special bodies of armed men placed above society and alienating themselves from it, police and a standing army, the West European and Russian Philistines are inclined to utter a few phrases to refer to the growing complexity of social life, the differentiation of functions, and so on. Such a reference seems scientific and effectively lulls the ordinary person to sleep by obscuring the important and basic fact, namely, the split of society into irreconcilable antagonistic classes, unquote. The United States is the shining jewel in the crown of an international rulership of the bourgeoisie, a rulership of the capitalist class for the capitalist class. Because of this, we are of necessity divided into antagonistic classes, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. The institution of the police in the United States and the imperialist nations function as the thugs of the bourgeoisie. A few rare coins and money notwithstanding, they protect the property and interests of the bourgeoisie, setting them above and apart from the poor and working class. As such, accountability for what they do to us is largely pro forma and performative. People's suits against police who violate their constitutional rights are considered frivolous lawsuits. To understand this, it helps to look to the history of policing in the United States. The first modern police force was founded in Boston. 
In the early history of the city, there was established the system of volunteer watchmen, a common model for the day. However, by the 19th century, given the increased population and sprawl of the city, it had been rendered ineffectual. Boston's lucrative shipping industry and associated businesses commonly employed private guards to protect their valuable assets. These businesses developed a scheme to pass the cost of these guards onto the public. Arguing that it was for the public good, their idea, the first modern police force, was established in 1838 with the citizens of the city footing the bill. The model spread around the country. In the South, the great generators of bourgeois wealth was enslaved African peoples. Thus, it was as natural as it was grotesque that slave-catching patrols would become their police forces. After the Civil War, the KKK became an extra-legal extension of the institution that enforced Jim Crow. Not only do cops and Klan go hand in hand, they are often one and the same. And it's not just in the South that terroristic white supremacy was wed to police forces. In the early 20th century, the Midwest was a Klan stronghold, with Michigan having more Klansmen than any other state. Another violent organization in the Midwest was the Black Legion, who terrorized and murdered in order to maintain the rule of white, Protestant men. The Detroit Police Department had many active members, with rumored involvement that went all the way to the top. Their targets weren't only oppressed nationalities, religions, and peoples, however. Organized labor, the bane of the Ford Motor Company, was also targeted. The forces of hate always work against the interests of the working class, and this is a prime example of this truth. Of course, people have a long history of fighting organized labor openly, often used as strike breakers. It was, after all, police who killed and wounded striking workers in Chicago, setting off the rally that became the Haymarket Affair. The oppression of poor, working-class, black, brown, and oppressed peoples by police is in the institution's DNA to this day. Black and brown and other oppressed peoples within the forces of the police are no exception. They serve the same rotten system. They are a special body of armed people placed above society because of the reality of irreconcilable class antagonisms. We may ask how we can best use what rights are yet afforded us to protect ourselves from the police. Former Attorney General, Nuremberg Chief Prosecutor and Supreme Court Justice Robert H. Jackson said, quote, Any lawyer worth his salt will tell the suspect in no uncertain terms to make no statement to police under any circumstances, unquote. In some states, you're required to give the police your name if asked. 
Other than that, the National Lawyers Guild advises that we never talk to police without a lawyer present, except to say, I am going to remain silent, I want to speak to a lawyer, or I do not consent to a search. Further, you should not let them in your residence, nor allow them a view inside, and should they bring a warrant, you should examine what areas of your residence it gives them the right to investigate. Both the Guild and the ACLU have Know Your Rights pamphlets online, the latter organizations in many languages. However, even for all this, your rights in dealing with police are only as good as they'll be held responsible for violating. TV, movies, comics, video games, and all assorted media can and will continue to valorize police with no end in sight. As capitalism enters its endgame and class antagonisms sharpen and become more visible, we can expect more of this even as the lines between police and military occupation continue to blur and dissolve. Amid the current COVID-19 pandemic, the Justice Department is seeking emergency powers to suspend various civil rights, and emergency powers are rarely revoked once instituted. Such is the nature of emergency powers in the U.S. The problem of police unaccountability, as we have seen, has its roots in irreconcilable class antagonisms. As such, they will never be solved with these antagonisms in place. Under the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, mechanisms such as qualified immunity, our officials turning a blind eye, will always allow police to operate outside of legal limits. The solution is not one of reform, it can only be revolutionary. It requires the overthrow of the rule of the class that takes the wealth that workers produce and puts it into the hands of the idle and self-important. Because these leeches will never allow their workers to share more than a minimum, and because they always seek to take more and more, they will always require armed brutes to protect their power and stolen wealth. No matter that they issue uniforms and badges to paint them as respectable public servants, they are class enemies. They will be so until the class that requires them no longer rules and justice is established. We have to organize, join revolutionary organizations, advance a revolutionary program, build a revolutionary movement. I know that you will take up this struggle, and I look forward to working with you and fighting together until we have liberated ourselves and our class and built a better world in the shell of the old. At such a moment, no immunity will prevail for any that prey on those who today are poor, working class, or otherwise oppressed. I have great faith that we will win. 
and I leave you with revolutionary love. This has been The Red Stripe.